Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of The Last Symptom. I'm happy to have you back here with me. What's uh, going on where you're at? How you doing? Winter is in full swing here where I'm at. You know, cold, gray skies. That's mostly it. Cold and gray skies. But like I say, I'm not complaining. I love for winter to be gray and cold. That's the way winter's supposed to be. And I look forward to it every year. So we're right in the heart of it, and I'm real happy about that. If you share the same hemisphere of the planet as I do... Well, then it's winter for you, too. And believe it or not, we are going to blink our eyes, and it's going to be summertime. So try to enjoy the last little bits of winter as far as you can. That's what I'm trying to do. In fact, I would like to uh, even take more advantage of winter and get out and do some backpacking or something before uh, the warm temperatures start coming back. been planning on taking old Ornery Orson, my young pup, he turns two this year, out into the woods and doing something like that. Well, whatever the case, wherever you are, I hope you're doing well out there. Did you see in the news this week that doctors gave somebody a pig heart? I'm not making this up. They transplanted a pig heart into a person for the very first time. I thought that was pretty interesting and scary at the same time. They had a picture of the guy after the transplant sitting up in his hospital bed getting a selfie taken with the surgeon who did the surgery. Think of that. The surgeon's just stuck a pig heart into you. In your chest. It's now in your chest beating a pig's heart and the doctor, the surgeon who did this wants to take a selfie with you. It's almost like comedy in science fiction ain't it i mean can you imagine reading something like that in a corny science fiction story or magazine or something 30 40 50 60 years ago about how weird the future is going to be it makes me think of books i read in my youth like ray bradbury uh, isaac asimov robert heinlein speculating about the future those books were and of course readers then were laughing to themselves not laughing but uh you know, it was it, it seemed exaggerated. It was interesting to imagine, to try to imagine, but at the same time, I think everybody understood it was kind of exaggerated, outlandish, and that uh, it couldn't really be taken seriously. And yet, here we are. Here we are, a surgeon replacing somebody's heart with a pig heart 
and then posing for a selfie with them. It's, it's really far out there. I'll tell you a specific example of what I'm talking about, about this kind of far-out, exaggerated notions of what the future could possibly bring, but that people don't really believe it would bring. The book for Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. If you haven't read that, it's a, it's a real good book. Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. In the story, which was written in 1953, Bradbury described entire walls of people's homes as being television screens and visual media just being in people's faces 24 hours a day. Constant, you know. Now, I'm sure that when that was first published, readers thought such a thing was possible a thousand years in the future, you know, 100, 200 years in the future. They thought it was possible. But they probably on some level also thought that reasonableness and balance would prevail and society would never bring it about because it's just such an exaggeration. You know, I didn't even read the book until probably the mid-80s, you know, because I wasn't alive in 1953 when it was released. But regardless, even when I read it in the mid-80s, it seemed a a bit far-fetched. It seemed like a a far-fetched exaggeration to me then. Regardless, here we are with entire walls of our homes covered in gigantic screens, usually in multiple rooms. And do you know, this is one thing I've been noticing over the course of maybe the past 20, 30 years, a lot of people I visit have their TVs running all the time for no reason. It really stands out to me because you know, I, I think we were allowed to watch a one half hour of television after school and we were allowed to watch uh, cartoons on Saturdays but other than that we weren't allowed to watch TV we had to be out in the woods or creating things or reading or you know doing some kind of more productive or constructive type of activity and um, so it always stands out to me when I go to somebody's home and they just it's rude actually they got the TV going on you're trying to hold a conversation with them they won't even turn the TV off and and that's just what it's become you know uh, they do it simply for background noise in fact I've asked people why do you need the TV on we're, we're not watching it I'm not watching it you're not watching it oh you know just background noise they can't comfortably sit in silence without distraction for more than five minutes think about that it makes them uncomfortable so if they just turn off the TV and they're in their home they can't stand it uh, it's, it's too quiet for them so they leave the TV on just running in the background and if you think about it even if they were to turn off their TV then what would they have they'd have their laptops their tablets their cell phones and these sorts of things their gaming consoles you know to fill in any voids so that they don't have to uh, experience any uncomfortable silence do you think that's healthy both individually and for the human race do you reckon that sort of thing is healthy 
can it ultimately lead to anything healthy for people as individuals or for society as a whole that people are addicted to constant stimulation and distraction and therefore never have time to isolate certain thoughts and spend you forget spending a day on an isolated thought like that people can't even spend five minutes five minutes alone with a thought uh, reflecting on a thought deeply because it makes them uncomfortable they need some kind of noise in the background uh, reminds me of somebody I started talking to way back in the beginning when I first uh, started the last symptom and I was explaining how unhealthy people you know really uh, people who are trying to recover from emotional disorders it is imperative that they set aside time and sit with uncomfortable sit through uncomfortable feelings and try to figure out why they feel uncomfortable where it's coming from take in a thought here and there or a memory play with it think about it analyze it and he said uh, you know what I've noticed is that when I'm driving in the car I'm constantly distracting myself with music the radio he says it makes me so uncomfortable what I'll do is I'll even start playing games with myself like I'll start counting the road signs that go by uh, that that's the sort of thing we're talking about running from uncomfortable feelings in any subconscious or unconscious way so that you don't have to spend even five minutes alone with it <laughs> do you think that's healthy do you know that in the book Fahrenheit 451 the sort of environment that we're discussing here this environment of constant distraction and stimulation do you know what sort of thing that environment the environment we see today do you know what sort of thing that gave rise to in the novel Fahrenheit 451 it gave rise to mass censorship yeah mass censorship this book in 1953 which describes exactly the environment that I'm telling you when I read the book I thought this is real far out there real far out there this is kind of like total fiction just total fiction but here we are and in the book uh, what this gave rise to and fostered was mass censorship so Ray Bradbury got the fact that we're all living in this sort of environment today with this, all this mass uh, distraction and stimulation he got that right. Did he get the mass censor? Did he get the part where that would give rise to and foster mass censorship? Did he get that right? Well, in the book, the mass censorship of information deemed as only confusing and complicating people's lives. That was the that was the censor censorship that was going on in that science fiction book. Of course, for its time, the story revolved around books, you know, censoring books. All the information in those books, it's just, you know, all it does, it just confuses people. It just complicates life. So uh, we're going to burn books. That's what they did. Do you see any parallels to that today in real life? You know, think beyond books to the way 
most information is shared today. Do you see any parallels? Any information out there that you can think of that nobody wants you to be able to share because they say it'll just confuse and complicate. So we're going to censor the living daylights out of it. Montag, the protagonist in Fahrenheit 451, at one point tries to have a meaningful conversation as he's coming out of this closed-minded myopia that he's been a victim of for most of his life, and he can't. He can't have a meaningful conversation with anybody about anything. Do you know why? Because everybody's indifferent, ignorant, and callous. Do you see any parallels today in the real world with the book in that regard? Are people having trouble converse, you know, having meaningful conversations with each other or of alerting to people about the dangers of censorship because there's a large group of people who are indifferent, ignorant, or callous, or all three? Do you see any parallels? The only people in Fahrenheit 451 who really see what's going on and the significance of it and are taking it seriously are people who are considered fringe rejects. Do you see any parallels with real life with that aspect of the book? If you haven't had a conversation with anybody lately who is indifferent ignorant or callous to censorship who argues it's justified or not a big deal or if you have had a conversation like that with somebody and you agreed with them you're missing something important so if you haven't read Fahrenheit 451 I highly recommend it it used to be mandatory reading in either grade schools or high schools here in the U.S., but since the book specifically contradicts any ideology that supports censoring information deemed confusing and complicating for society, I don't see how it could still be on school lists. Since it's academia in cahoots with big tech who are behind all censorship today, And if they do still require it in schools, the only reason I can see that that would even be possible would be if the folks in academia aren't emotionally honest enough to see how they themselves embody the very thing that Ray Bradbury was warning society about. I have no doubt that in their minds they interpret their own actions and their own role in a lofty positive way you know they choose to perceive themselves as being morally justified by the way did you know that once you perceive yourself as morally justified in a thing it's like a blank check to do whatever you want did you know that so for example you know most of us agree you know the vast majority of us agree 
like 98% of us in society agree uh, that racism is not good. 98, probably 98% of people would agree that racism is, uh, offers no benefit to society, that it's wrong. So, you know, people already share that moral understanding that racism is wrong. But now think about this. If you can equate something to, to being racist, even if it's not racist, but you can equate it as being racist and convince people that it is racist, then they've got a blank check. You can beat people up. You can kill them. You can throw them in jail. You can persecute them. And uh, you can do so with a completely clean conscience because you believe it's morally justified. Now here's the problem. You and I might disagree about what is racist and what is not racist. I saw Michael Baldwin. Is it Michael Baldwin? Who's the guy who just shot somebody on the set of a movie, movie set? Was that Michael Baldwin? Anyway, it was one of the Baldwins. Um, he was talking about his wife. He was doing it. He was taking a walk with uh, Kevin Nealon has this thing on YouTube where he takes walks in California and he gets a hold of some of uh, you know celebrities and stuff and they just take a walk and they just talk while they're walking along but he was walking along with uh, this this guy this actor and um, the guy was talking about his wife who I reckon is from Spain or something like that and he imitated her accent and then he apologizes to Kevin Nealon. Oh, I know that was racist. It's racist for me to uh, imitate my wife's Spanish accent. See, that's it's real far. That's an exa- that's a real exaggeration to say that that sort of thing's racist. And I don't think he was joking. So, you know, that's one thing where I would disagree with you on. I don't think imitating a foreign accent is racist. Racist, by its very definition, means that because of somebody's race, you're treating them differently, or you're disliking a person based on their race, not on their language. What's language got to do with it? What's what's their language got to do with their race? The two things are not, uh, you know, inherently the same. <laughs> Uh, you can be Asian and can grow up in uh, Chicago, right? If you grow up in Chicago, it doesn't matter if you're Asian, you're probably going to grow up speaking English. So again, what inherent relationship does language have to a person's race? And if it's not an inherently, inseparably linked, then how can you say then how can you say it's racist? Racist has to involve somebody's race, not not their language. But anyway, that's an example I'm giving you. If if you think it's morally justified, if you think a thing's morally justified, then it just gives you a, a blank check to do whatever you want with a perfectly clean conscience. Let's say that you're morally justified in uh, persecuting a religion. As long as you think it's morally justified, you got a blank check. You can do it. You feel like you believe that you've got the high ground. And uh, you can commit some really great atrocities. That's the problem 
with people believing that they have a, that they're morally justified in a thing it's dangerous I have no doubt that academia and big tech they believe they perceive themselves as being morally justified and um, in their censorship now here's the problem whether they believe that they're morally justified or not they're missing the principle of the thing it really demonstrates uh, a shocking inability to think in terms of principles and it's really it's a demonstration of arrogance you know think about how arrogant it is for me to believe for example that that I my opinions my thoughts my perspectives on life are much much greater and morally superior to yours a lot of people who do this themselves have real problems with religious people for the same reasons why for being judgmental for thinking they're morally superior you know viewing themselves as morally more greatly morally justified in things than other people are it's it's really a reflection of arrogance ignorance and myopia a complete inability to think in terms of principles you know principles the beautiful thing about them is that they hold true across all circumstances and situations not just the ones convenient for you anybody who understands the principles involved with uh, free speech and censorship know that just because you believe that in this uh, environment because of a pandemic or because of some other extenuating circumstances just because you believe that you are morally justified in what you're doing it's myopic it, it shows a, it shows a lack of ability to think in terms of principles principles apply to everybody if i if i want free speech for example if i if i want to be able to talk the truth as i see it and not be censored if I want that for myself, then I have to I have to be willing to grant it to you too, even if I don't like what you're saying, even if it is going to cause uh, confusion and uh, complicate people reaching their own conclusions or not. You know, that's, that judgment isn't up to you. People should be allowed to uh, decide what information they want to expose themselves to or not. You know, if you think about it, the entirety might work. It relies on people... Uh, being able to choose for themselves whether or not they think that the information I share is useful or valuable to them or not. How would you like me trying to tell you how I, I recovered from borderline personality disorder and uh, Facebook telling telling you that no, you that's dangerous for you to hear. You shouldn't hear that. And why would they do that? <laughs> because their fact checkers are from the professional community. How would you like that? Well, it's happening. It's happening right now. Uh, it's not a political thing. It, it's a thing based in fundamental principles. But anyway, back to Pig Heart Guy. When I read about Pig Heart Guy getting his surgery, I couldn't help but imagine myself as that guy Knowing, you know, sitting there in my bed, uh, leaning up to get this uh, selfie with the surgeon, knowing 
that I have an experimental pig heart beating in my chest. And the thing I kept coming back to is that wouldn't you be waiting for that thing to poop out anytime? It's a pig heart. It's got to be terrifying. You know, it's a relief on one hand that you woke up from that surgery at all. But on the other hand, it's a pig heart. You know, it's something that's not really supposed to be there at all. And it's kind of astonishing that it works at all. So I'd be... I wouldn't feel very calm or relaxed, you know, even even coming out of that surgery. I'd be thinking, oh boy, this thing could give out at any time. But when that article was written, three days had already passed and the guy seemed to be doing okay. So the pig heart seems to still be working. I mean, it is really an incredible thing. And uh, from what I understand... They had to genetically manipulate it, the pig, genetically manipulate the pig so that the uh, the transplant host body wouldn't reject this pig heart. So more went into it than just you know going out, wrestling down some pig, taking its heart and putting it in a person. It was a little bit more involved than that, but still a fascinating, incredible thing. Hey, a lot of you know that even though I'm a hillbilly from the Appalachian region where West Virginia, Kentucky, and southeastern Ohio meet that I lived for over a decade in Philly and I still consider Philly my adopted hometown. Because of that, I regularly regularly keep up on the news there and I try to keep in touch with Philly life and conversations. In fact, it was my custom while in Philly to always listen to the local talk radio uh, there local in Philadelphia. So uh, on my morning commutes, I'd always listen to 1210 AM radio WPHT there in Philly and fortunately I can still do that with modern technology so nowadays I still listen to 1210 WPHT Uh, I just do so through uh, the radio.net app and so I can still listen to uh, all the Philly morning radio there on the AM station just as if I was commuting to work like, like always before I especially like listening to Dom Giordano. A lot of people from Philly know exactly who that is. While I was still in Philly, Michael Smirkanich was somebody I always also really enjoyed listening to. That's where Michael Smirkanich got his start was on uh, Philadelphia Morning Radio. Over Christmas, there was a terrible fire in Philadelphia. I don't know if it was in the national news or not, but it was pretty bad. Uh, I got the news from the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer. In Philly, there's a lot of these uh, row homes. And what they are, basically, they're just homes built wall to wall to wall, and they sometimes go entire city blocks. So it's sort of a wonder to me that the fire wasn't worse than it turned out to be and that it contained itself to just two homes. But this was in the Fairmount area of Philly, And according to some reports I come across, it's possible that a child got a hold of a lighter early in the morning and ended up catching the family Christmas tree on fire. So this is according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. A five-year-old told Fairmount Fire Investigators a Christmas tree ignited as he played with a lighter. The Philadelphia Fire Marshal's Office continues to investigate 
and has not yet announced an official cause for the blaze. When first responders arrived at the three-story row house before sunrise, the boy had made it out of the building. He then told a neighbor, and later a paramedic, a firefighter, and hospital staff, how the fire had started and that his mother had died. Fire officials said 26 people had been occupying the 2,300 square foot building along North 23rd Street. 14 were listed as living in the four bedroom upper unit. Uh, The New York Post says that at least 13 people were killed, including seven kids. The mayor of Philadelphia called it one of the most tragic days in our city's history. Now here's what I wanted to talk to you about as it relates to the principles and laws that we regularly discuss about emotional health. Remember when we've discussed how anything that happened in your childhood are things your parents are responsible for, not you? I'm sure a lot of people struggle to accept that that is true. Anything that happened in your childhood, even the things you did that you were told not to do, those are your, that was your parents' responsibility, not yours. Why? Because children aren't responsible for themselves. Their parents are responsible for them. This means that uh, the parents are responsible for every mistake you make, everything you do, everything that happens to you. So it doesn't even have to be something you've done. If something bad happens to you, that's your parents' responsibility. They are responsible for seeing ahead at the possibility of that happening to you and avoiding that and making sure that you avoid that happening to you. Because parents are responsible for their children, it means the the parents are responsible for everything. Not just the good, but for everything. You know, you get an A on your test at school, that's great. Uh, You know, the parents are very proud of that. They say, yeah, because of my parenting, I made sure he studied hard, did his homework, and he got that A. But the parents are also responsible for when you, uh, as a child, accidentally uh, take your slingshot outside and, and bust out somebody's window. Parents are responsible for both the good and the bad. Um, in a very practical sense for recovery, this means that you can and that you should, with a completely clear conscience, fully unload absolutely every single weight of regret, shame, and think about this, that a lot of people confuse, uh, I'd say almost everybody, every unhealthy person uh, talks about, when they're talking about guilt, they're not really talking about guilt. They're talking about shame. So everything that you would mistakenly uh, identify as guilt that you're really talking about shame and anything that happened in your childhood that is shaming you or guilting you or uh, filling you with regret, any of those things, any of these things that you've been carrying on your back from all the years from before when you were a child 
all the way up into adulthood, you can just simply let that go. That's what that means. It's not a weight you have to carry anymore because it's not a weight that was ever yours to carry in the first place. The responsibility for none of those years or for any of those experiences ever belonged to you. They always belonged to your parents. I bring this uh, Fairmount Fire in Philadelphia up because it's a pretty good example to highlight the truthfulness of what I'm telling you. Let's say that the the five-year-old child, remember it was a five-year-old child who uh, was playing with the lighter and caught the Christmas tree on fire. Let's say that this five-year-old child was the one who by himself picked up a lighter and started that fire. And let's say that his mother even told him, Tyrone or you know whatever the kid's name is, Tyrone, don't you dare pick up that lighter and play with it. But let's say that he did it anyway. Who's responsible for the fire? Are the police and the mayor and the city of Philadelphia right now blaming this kid for starting that fire? Nobody. Nobody with an ounce of understanding whatsoever about how responsibility and childhood work are blaming or looking at the kid as being the person responsible for that fire, I guarantee you. It's not the child who's responsible for the fire. Rather, it is the parent who left the lighter there in a place where the child could get to it. And in this case, that person, that that parent seems to be the mother who tragically was one of the people to die in the fire. It it is really tragic. But, um, you know, me saying that she was responsible for the fire is not the same as me saying that she was a terrible person. I'm simply saying that she was responsible for the child who played with the lighter, caught the tree on fire, therefore she's responsible for the fire. Why is it that she's the one who's responsible for the deadly fire, even though she wasn't the one to personally pick up the lighter and light that Christmas tree on fire. Well, we already explained it, didn't we? Because she's the one responsible for the child. And her child was dependent on her for everything. Because she's responsible for her child, this means she's also responsible for everything the child does or doesn't do or that happens to the child. She's responsible for everything related to her child. Anything involving her child, she's ultimately responsible for. My hope is that this child will grow up with a clean conscience and not carrying the weight of this experience on his back. Even though something he did resulted in a terrible tragedy, I hope I really do hope that the people around him will help him to understand that it wasn't ever his responsibility to know better or to keep himself safe or to understand and guard against fire hazards and practice fire safety. It was his mother. His mother was the one responsible for all those things. And it was her failures 
that led that led to this tragedy, not his. So again, if you're packing around the weight of things from childhood that are keeping you stuck in place and hating on yourself, it's time to accept that children aren't responsible for themselves. And all of the implications of what that truly means, and then to let your your young self off the hook. Truly forgive yourself for anything from your childhood. It's not being permissive. It's accepting and being and living harmoniously with the reality of the situation. You know, I have a wood pile over here for my wood stove. It's my responsibility to understand the dangers that are inherent to that to having you know a big heavy pile of wood stacked so high that's my responsibility and it's my responsibility to protect my daughter from playing around it why is it my responsibility because i'm an adult and i'm capable of fully understanding the dangers that are involved and proactively protecting myself and my daughter from those dangers my daughter's not an adult she lacks the capacity to fully understand such dangers even if she wanted to therefore if I'm negligent and because of my negligence uh, she gets out there starts playing around the wood pile and it all falls on her and injures and injures her or even worse it doesn't matter if I wasn't the one playing on the wood pile I'm still responsible for everything that happens and uh, you know even if I tell her honey absolutely do not play on the woodpile don't play around there don't walk within this zone it's still my responsibility to make sure she doesn't do it it I can't just trust that she won't Be, why not because at her age she's six she she lacks the capacity it literally lacks the capacity even when I give her an instruction like that, she lacks the capacity to fully understand the true nature of those dangers and to, the capacity to fully understand the importance of what I'm telling her. So it, even if I do give her a warning like that, it's still my responsibility to make sure that she is unable to even get close there. Not just trust that she won't. I can't do that understanding that she lacks the capacity to understand the full gravity of the nature of that situation and the full seriousness of what I'm telling her I have I still have to follow up even though I've told her not to you know even though I tell her not to what that is that is not a that does not release me from responsibility the reason I tell her that is sort of as like a um, a backup security measure Right, so if I get negligent, if I get busy and I'm not paying attention to her, um, hopefully that will serve as a backup emergency type thing that may keep her away from the woodpile. But it's still my responsibility to make sure that she doesn't get near the woodpile. You know how kids are. They get um, distracted very easily they uh, they get forgetful very easily and before you know it uh, they're in a place where they they know they're not supposed to be but they're there anyway and not because they're purposely disobeying you or anything it's just 
they're not uh, you know mindful all the time of they can't even be mindful all the time of all of the instruction you're giving them I'm thinking about this kid with this lighter his, his mom might have told him don't play with the lighter that's for grown ups don't play with that but he got up You know, I think the fire happened like 6.30 in the morning so he got up he's by himself probably mom's probably still asleep everybody's still asleep he sees that lighter there there's been a lot of excitement going on. I think this happened on Christmas morning or the day after Christmas. You know, he's had a lot of my on his mind, this little boy, this five-year-old boy. He's not 40. You know, he can't handle responsibility like that. He shouldn't be expected to. He sees the lighter. He probably doesn't even think. If he does think, Mom said not, not to play with this, he doesn't understand why all the real, the gravity of why she's telling him not to play with that. So that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. That uh, it's not fair, uh, nor is it even based in reality or, or reasonableness whatsoever, to uh, hold children to the same types of expectations that we hold ourselves to now. We've got you know, 35, 40, 45 years on a five-year-old. Uh, a lot of us. <laughs> I know I can't talk for all of you. I'm just, I'm trying to imagine who, you know, what the average age of my audience is, probably between 20 and 16. So, if anything happens to my daughter around the woodpile, still my responsibility. Even if I tell her, don't play around the woodpile. And she does it anyway. Still my responsibility. Let's talk announcements real briefly. The Last Symptom website. TheLastSymptom.com That's it. It's my website full of free resources. There's loads more free resources there than there are paid resources. But it is the paid, you know, the few modest paid resources that allow me to keep providing the free resources. That and uh, voluntary donations. So if you're interested in donating to support what I'm doing here, that would be much appreciated. The paid resources are one-on-one phone calls with me, one-on-one Zoom video calls with me, and the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, which is a two-week intensive pre-recorded course. It's not scary at all. It works with your, your own schedule, no matter what your schedule is. So it's two weeks of intensive instruction with kind of a PowerPoint type setup uh, and you'll be looking at me like a lot of you are right now what we do is we go through the from the very beginning to the very end of uh, what causes emotional disorder I use borderline personality disorder specifically uh, in great detail because that's what I have personal experience with but it applies to all emotional disorders and um, we break down exactly the underlying causes for all those things. We discuss in great detail uh, how those things got there, why they behave the way they do, and the steps that you need to take in order to uh, eliminate, rid yourself of the disorder in an authentic and permanent way. So that can be found at thelastsymptom.com. The Last Symptom community is a place that we would really like to be able to mingle with you and get to know your personal circumstances and and uh, help guide you in the right direction. And the way you can join that community is at thelastsymptom.locals.com. And finally, 
This podcast is now usually available also as uh, video episodes. So if you'd like to watch me instead of just listen to me, you can do that on both Rumble and on YouTube. Just search for The Last Symptom, or even easier yet, just run over to thelastsymptom.com. And there is a, uh, a section of the site there that's called Resources, and you just go in there, and links to everything that you need are right there. One other thing I want to tell you, in addition to video episodes here of the show, Orange Slices, which are condensed video insights, are being published regu- regularly. <laughs> Boy, why did I include that word so much in today's show? Regularly on uh, both Rumble and YouTube. So these are very short videos that are taken directly from the show, but they're very brief, you know, between five, ten minutes. So that's also available on Rumble and YouTube. You know, I was thinking the other day, because I still catch myself, even though, you know, I have great hopes for Rumble, I still catch myself, for convenience sake, uh, still using YouTube most of the time. And I, I asked myself the other day, why is that? And I realized what it is. Uh, Rumble has yet to offer or include playlists, you know, that you can like create for yourself. So like my favorite videos, you know, you create your own folder, favorite videos. And then anytime you come across a video that you really like, you just save it into that folder, favorite videos. That way you don't have to go searching all over Rumble every time you want it or all over YouTube. And uh, Rumble is yet to include or create playlists so that's really the thing shooting them in the foot right now but uh, once they come out with the playlist capability then rumble is really going to be a force to be reckoned with in fact once rumble comes out with uh, playlists i can't think of anything for my personal use that would keep me using youtube so they really need to get on the ball and and create that capability So until then, I think it's really delaying people making any serious commitment to the platform. Here's some correspondence I got a while back. It says, uh, Dear Brian, you said that whenever it's not possible to put physical distance between you and somebody who's unhealthy or bad for you, that you should put emotional distance between you and them instead. Now, the reason I had this conversation was because uh, a lot of folks, a lot of Indians um, in India especially females, I know that it is customary for them to continue living with their families until marriage or until they gain a certain amount of independence where they you know, would move out. But it's, it's different than the American culture. In the American culture, you know, we turn 18, 19, we're gone. And the way I understand it, in India, it's not like that. In India, it's very customary for uh, young women to continue living at home and um, you know the financial situation over there is different economics is what I mean and so I've talked to uh, Indian followers of the last symptom and they've said hey it's not feasible for me to uh, be living on my own yeah, I still live at home with my folks we're talking about people who are uh, you know women who are in their 20s and even 30s and so they say you know if I can't get away from this really unhealthy environment if that's not feasible for me then what should I do and uh, what I've told him is that the idea is the same you, you want to create distance so if you can't create physical distance from a, an unhealthy influence 
then what you got to do is you got to create emotional distance from that emotional emotionally unhealthy influence so imagine that you're still stuck at home living with your folks um, you got to see them every day those sorts of things uh, you can still create distance emotionally by not engaging with them in the ways that you would if there was just no problems whatsoever um, you wouldn't share certain things with them you know you would keep a lot to yourself or find somebody else to share those intimate things with rather than just opening yourself up to those people because uh, what's going to happen is that they're going to use that against you it's going to create a lot of frustration a lot of unhappiness a lot of angst a lot of conflict so that's what I mean is you just don't share those things with them you don't open yourself up that way to them you create that emotional you know if you think about it anything that's inside of you as private and personal to you nobody has access to that it doesn't matter if you live with the, with a person or you don't you get to choose everything that you will share with somebody so even if you live in the same house with somebody you can create almost the identical conditions not if not physically emotionally so think about my father you know we have no contact think about what that means it means I don't share with him the things that are going on in my life the things that are important to me the things I'm working on the things I'm thinking about because we have no contact whatsoever now let's say that my dad and I were living in the exact same house could I still do that sure I could I still get to choose who I'm gonna share those things with nobody can access anything that is inside of me unless I choose to share it right so that's the distance I'm talking about don't open yourself up to and engage in that way with people who are not a good influence on you even if you live in the same house with them you can keep it let's say professional you know it you share with them what what absolutely must be shared with them in order to live life and no more hey I paid the electric bill. Oh, great. Why'd you do that for? Well, I, because I wanted to do my share. You know, you're, you're just stating the, the superficial facts. You're not going any further than that. Oh, I did it because this is the way I feel, and, you know, I feel like I'm not doing enough. And no, don't, You don't need to do all that. Keep distance. Keep distance, even though physically you can't. So, this person who wrote to me says, you said that whenever it's not possible to put physical distance between you and somebody who's unhealthy or bad for you, you should put emotional distance between you and them instead. How do you do that? Well, we just talked about how you do that. Right? You still have to have interactions with them, but you keep it almost like this is a workmate. This is not my friend. This is just somebody I'm doing business with. I have to do business with this person. I will keep it on a business level. That's how you create emotional distance. The person goes on to say, whenever there's an interaction with one specific person, I can't uh, eliminate from my life completely. It's like he injects poison under my skin without me noticing immediately. It's hours after that I feel the effect, and it takes me days to get it out of my system. How does this work? what is the poison 
why can't I be immune? So it's a good question, and uh, it's one that I can heavily relate to. Here's what you got to do. The first thing you got to do in a situation like this is you have to ask yourself why. Why is this person having a, such an effect on you? Why are they able to have such an effect on you? There's only one reason why, if you think about it. If you're honest and you think about it. There's only one reason why anybody can get to you. And that reason, the only way that can happen is if you secretly desire something else from them instead. Right? person has that type of effect on you because you secretly desire something from them that they aren't giving you and honestly may never give you but you're secretly desiring it anyway. This applies to any situation. So the person I'm talking to here is talking about an ex, you know, just not to beat around the bush. The person's talking about an ex and they share a child together. So they have to continue having interactions with each other because of their the child that they share. So asking the question why and the answer being uh, that the person has can have this effect on you. The only reason they can have that effect on you is because you secretly desire something from them that they ain't giving you and they're not going to give you. In this case, change. right? What is the person hoping for? He's, I pray to God he will be different this time. That, uh, that he will realize. Well, it's this. I pray to God that my feelings will matter to him that my feelings will matter to him enough that he will realize the pain he's causing me and the frustration he's causing me and he will take that into consideration and his interactions with me will be different that's what the person's hoping for that's what the person is trying to will into existence and when the person doesn't do that what is the only thing that can result in? Tremendous frustration, right? And angst. And surely her mind is thinking about this long after. That's why she says that uh, she may not even realize it at first, but uh, hours and sometimes even days later, she realizes it's still driving her nuts. That's because whether she realizes she's still mauling that over or not, she is. So she has her interaction with the partner, the ex-partner. He goes away. Her mind is still ruminating on all the ways he has not changed, on all the ways her feelings do not matter to him, on all the ways that he demonstrates a total disregard for, for her, who she is, her feelings, her thoughts. And it's painful. Because why? Because of her secret desire for what he would be instead so secret desire to get something from somebody that they ain't giving you or desire for them to uh, to care is really what it is for a, a secret desire for them to care and to demonstrate that care 
a genuineness to want to see how screwy some of their perspectives on life are and how selfish uh, and self-involved they are. So it's up to each person who's in a situation like this to be honest with himself or herself. Try to identify what aspect about this person you're using to make yourself upset. Because remember, nobody else can make us upset. We use that in lazy speech all the time. Oh, he made me mad. She made me mad. But those of you who have been with the last symptom for a while know that that is not what's happening. What instead is happening anytime we get mad is that we're taking something. We're observing a thing. We're taking it in. We're doing that ourselves. And we're using it ourselves, within ourselves, to make ourselves mad. That is the true nature of anger. Nobody can make you mad. Nothing can make you mad. We as individuals can only make ourselves mad. And we do that by, you know, our perspectives and our thoughts related to a thing. So if I see some injustice out in public, I can observe that and... uh, and I can use that to make myself mad. Another person might observe that same thing, not perceive any injustice in it, not get mad at all. But that, you know, if I'm getting mad over it, that's what's happening. I'm taking it in. I'm uh, chewing on it and, and analyzing it in a way, entertaining thoughts in a way to make myself mad. So uh, you have to identify what aspect about this person are you taking and using to make yourself upset? Why do you find it upsetting? You know, Why is the way that you're choosing to think about this thing or perceive this thing making you upset? And here's a big one. Remember we're talking about desiring something different from somebody than what they're giving us? What is that? Well, that is, to be frank about it, a desire to control another person. So instead of just saying, this is what I'm getting from the person, you're instead desiring to control them to being and behaving and feeling and thinking entirely different, differently. Uh, the healthiest way to go about life is not to be trying to exert our will in any directions or on anybody but instead instead to observe the what we're getting right you'll suffer a lot less frustration in life if that's the way you go about life so instead of me for example observing my brother and thinking about all the things I wish he would do do you see how that's There's a secret part of me who wants to make him be different. If I can surrender that, uh, surrender that away, and just observe non-judgmentally, this is what I, this is what I'm getting from him. This is what I can expect from him. This is, this is what he's giving. Well, then there's a lot less frustration in that if I'm just observing. Okay, this is just what I'm getting. As opposed to, this is what this is what I secretly want for him to give me. What subtle desire for control over other people might you be living with inside yourself? That's really what it comes down to.
typically if another person's how we you know if they're already how we want them to be that doesn't cause any frustration does it but the opposite causes frustration when a person's not how we want them to be so give up wanting a person to be a certain way instead develop the skill the art of just being able to accept what you are getting except I mean in the healthy way not in the agreeing with them or liking what they're giving you that's not what I'm talking about what I'm talking about is just non-judgmental observing all right this is what they're giving me all right now I can make some decisions for myself <clears throat> recognizing that I have no control over them I have no secret desire to control them so I'm able to observe what what they dish out just non-judgmentally okay that's what I get well then based on that these are the decisions I'm going to make for myself do you see that the real solution is to truly and completely let other people be other people and for you to be content being you when you can do this when you can truly accept the total powerlessness that you have over other people and you surrender away any secret desire to control them which is what you're doing when you when they are a certain way and you get frustrated that's that's where that's coming from I want them to be this way and they're not do you see the the frustration is really silly because it's pointless Remember that people are the weather to you. You might, for a second, be, get disappointed when you look out the window and the weather's doing something that you didn't want it to do that day. But you don't walk around all day long obsessing about it, kicking the wall, uh, those sorts of things. And why not? Because you know it's a waste of time. You know that the weather is completely out of your control. It is going to do whatever it does. So when the weather does something that you don't like, you say to yourself, whether you're consciously, whether you're consciously aware you say this to yourself or not, you say to yourself, well, that's disappointing. But now I'm going to have to make some decisions for myself. Can't control the weather, but I can control me. So what am I going to do with this reality of what the weather is doing? That's how you handle people, too. Can't control him not even going to waste time or energy or emotion on that but I can make decisions for myself so surrendering away any secret desire for controlling others <clears throat> have you ever heard of the name Ernest Shackleton if you don't know that story I'm not going to go into it in great detail here today but if you don't know that story, my goodness, it is one of the greatest stories of survival and of persistence uh, ever. Anyway, the name of the ship was Endurance. And, um, man, what a great story. It can be used in so many uh, parables and comparisons and illustrations and, and everything like that. The Endurance and its entire crew got stranded out, I think, up in the Arctic and... Uh, the crew and Ernest Shackleton survived just unbelievable odds. 
in this survival situation where they were running out of food. At one point, they had dogs. They had uh, sled, sled dogs that they had to eat. They had to use uh, parts of the ship for uh, fires and that sort of thing until the, the ship, uh, basically the ocean, more or less reclaimed the ship. They had to tra- uh, travel across the frozen ocean by foot carrying supplies and whatever they could what happened if I'm remembering right is uh, that's what it was they were packing along their supplies dragging them behind them like a sled in uh, their emergency boats so eventually they come to an island the ice melted enough that they could get into these emergency boats and uh, head back out to sea but they left most of the crew there on that island said we'll come back for you I think it took them like a whole year for the ones who set out on the boat to reach civilization and then to come back and rescue the rest of the crew unbelievable story but when I was reading recently and I've known about Ernest Shackleton and that whole thing there for a long time but one thing that I was reading about that recently the author wrote about that whole experience there's a state that people get into when things look so grim life just doesn't seem that important and I remember in the heart of my own pain and recovery and my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder reaching that state it wasn't a suicidal state you know I wasn't going to do anything to hurt myself but I do remember thinking well if I did die that wouldn't be too bad it wouldn't be too bad at all there's a state that people get into when things look so grim life just doesn't seem that important if you're currently experiencing that I'd like it to bring it bring it to your attention that just because things seem a certain way doesn't mean that they are a certain way so just because life doesn't seem that important doesn't mean that it's not important it just means that you're experiencing a really gloomy time right now so remind yourself of that and uh, just like Ernest Shackleton's ship you remember what it was called endurance that's what you need that's what you need endurance and endurance is a beautiful quality endurance is what will get you through tremendous gloom you know uh, I think I said not too long ago that what I've always admired rather than these guys who can you know bench press 19 tons of weights uh, the, the thing about these Olympic weightlifters is that they get that thing up over their head and you know in two seconds their arms start shaking and they, they got to drop it so it's a great accomplishment that they were able to lift that thing at all but that doesn't impress me what impresses me much more is that a, is a person who can lift half that weight and hold it up there for 20 minutes that's impressive that's endurance runners running races uh, long distance races 
they pace themselves. It is endurance that gets them across the uh, 20-mile mark or whatever it is, you know. So that's really, it's such a beautiful quality, and I wanted to remind you of that just because things seem gloomy and grim and life doesn't seem so important. Remind yourself that with endurance, you will again see just how important life is, just how important all the beautiful things in life are. Anyway, I'm getting off topic there, but I wanted to tell you about that Ernest Shackleton. We we might talk about him in greater detail sometime in the future, but um, if you if you get a hankering uh, to look him up, his name is spelled E R N E S T Shackleton S H A C K L E T O N. It's an amazing story. You you will really enjoy that. In fact, if you're one of those people who feel like life is so grim and you want to pump up your endurance I highly recommend looking up Ernest Shackleton and the endurance and reading all about that story it might uh, animate you and encourage you in, in really wonderful ways well it's winter time and because it's winter time I wanted to tell you about the time that my friend Jordan and I got snowed in during uh, probably the blizzard of the decade while my parents were away on a trip I was 16 or no how old was I 16 or 17 I could drive at the time my parents were going on this trip they were going to be going for a week and it was this time of year they said whatever you do don't have anybody over while we're going I said alright and because I was 16 as soon as they left, I called up Jordan, <laughs> my best friend. I said, hey, Jordan, my parents are going to be going for a whole week. You want to stay with me? He said, I sure do. So he packed up a bag. I went over and picked him up. There was another thing my parents said absolutely don't do. It was my dad. He said, whatever you do, don't drive my pickup truck while I'm going. He had a small pickup truck, and I was driving a car my car was front wheel drive and um, but you know I was 16 I did there were a lot of things I didn't know and one of the things I didn't know was that my dad's pickup truck was a rear wheel drive and uh, performed much much more terribly in the snow than my car would perform a front wheel drive will do a lot better than a rear wheel, rear wheel drive especially on a pickup truck because the pickup truck has that bed on the back and so it's got no weight above the axles you can't really if you get on ice or snow or anything like that there's no real weight on the back you know on the tires that are moving the vehicle to uh, to let it grab and get traction uh, bite down into the snow and the ice and that sort of thing well I didn't know that I just thought well it's a truck it'll do better than my car in the snow so when uh, Jordan come over this snowstorm started I mean it was coming down heavy and uh, for those of you who are just joining me I grew up way out in the middle of the woods in the middle of nowhere in the Appalachian uh, backwoods and uh, we started thinking well we're going to get stuck in the, in my house out there in the middle of nowhere 
we need some things you know we're going to need uh mountain dew we drank a lot of mountain dew back in you know pop and we're going to need pizza we're going to need a bunch of junk junk food and especially we're going to need lots of movies and so we decided to leave my car there at my house and to take my dad's pickup truck and that was a big mistake and i learned real quick <laughs> why that was such a mistake i really should have just listened to my dad we got into town and it, it's a miracle we got back because where i grew up i grew up on these old dirt roads out in the middle of nowhere and to get into town you know it was like 15 20 minutes and by the time we got into town got all of our pop got our snacks got uh, the movies everything was freezing up and the snow was coming down real heavy and i when we come out of the piggly wiggly we got into my dad's pickup truck i couldn't even barely hardly get out of the uh the grocery store parking lot that's how bad this thing did in snow it just did not want to go so i think what i did is i called some guy i called some fellows over i said hey jump on the back here so they stood on the back of the truck so that it could it could bite into the the ground and move the truck forward until we got up the hill there and then we had that 15 20 minute drive on uh, roads that were not going to be plowed for weeks um you know where i grew up we had nobody come out and plow our roads uh we did uh but they did what they would do is they'd do everything in the county for people who lived near town and inside town and then they'd finally get out to us about a week later so for a whole week there was no plowed roads or anything so it was a miracle we got back to my house and the reason why i want to tell you this story is because it's so memorable to me so many things happened while jordan and i were snowed in on my house now another thing i'll tell newcomers is that we didn't have running water so i had to go down over the hill every night with a couple buckets and i'd pull water out of a freshwater spring now a lot of people when i tell them this they think i'm talking about a well i'm not talking about a well this thing weren't three feet deep i mean you could stick your arm down into it and touch the bottom so it wasn't that deep uh, and it wasn't uh, manufactured by anybody it was it was a naturally occurring freshwater spring so just a hole in the ground and uh so we had plenty of water i had to keep going down getting the water down into the snowy or down over the snowy woods the electricity kept going in and out so we'd have electricity for a couple hours and then go out for like five hours come on for a couple hours go out for hours and that happened that way all week long in total i think we got about three feet of snow probably a little bit more it was a big snowstorm you know my family because we heated with a wood stove the way that we would kind of uh, moderate the temperatures inside the house is when the wood stove would get really hot there's no way there's no way to turn it down immediately like a thermostat so what you do is you just open some doors <laughs> that's uh that's the way that we controlled kind of the temperature inside the house if the if the stove would get too hot you know you can control the stove by closing the flue and that sort of thing but as far as once it got too hot you know there's no way to just like turn it down immediately so you just crack doors open and i remember us cracking the doors open there in the back 
and the snow, the three feet of snow just right outside the door there, and start daring each other to, uh, in shorts, we were both wearing shorts, to run out barefoot way back into the woods, touch this tree, and come running back in three feet of snow. I remember us doing that, running out there past the wood pile, back into the dark woods, touching a tree and coming back and just be freezing, you know, but the, the stove would be right there. So we'd go up and warm ne- up next to the, to the stove. Um, I also remember that uh, <laughs> we'd open up the back door and just pee out the back door. And Jordan did that, opened up the back door, peed out the back door. I think he was the first one to do it. And then I went to do it. And when I opened up the door, what I saw were two pee streams in in the snow. I said, what's that all about? I thought you only peed one time. He said, I did. But uh, it did that thing, you know, that, that happens from time to time, where when you're peeing, it splits into a double stream. Now, this is something that guys know about. I don't know how many girls know about this. That happens when you have a penis and you're peeing with your penis. For some, sometimes the, <laughs> the pee stream will split into two, and you can't really control it. And that's probably, you know, you wives, if you're ever complaining about pee on the bathroom floor, that probably happened to your husband or your boyfriend, is that he went in there did his best to aim for the commode but when that happens there's just <laughs> there's no control in it you're trying to get both streams into the commode at the same time it's a big mess so anyway that got us into this big philosophical conversation about what causes that had to keep the food stove going the whole time so I it was my job every night in the winter time to go out and split firewood and have plenty of firewood on the back stoop and so you know I kept the house going that way uh, electric, like I said, kept going in and out. Because it kept going in and out, and it would be out for so long, I had to, at some point, I had to take all the contents from the freezer so that nothing would spoil, and I just took it outside, and I I stored it in the snow outside. And so in that way, I was able to keep all of the, uh, the food in the freezer from spoiling. And one thing I was in the habit of doing back in is uh, I would fish all summer long. I'd bring the fish home, I'd fillet the fish, and I would store the meat in a in a sandwich bag or in a freezer bag, and then I would put that in the freezer and I would just save it for later. Uh, a friend of mine taught me to do that, and so I had an entire summer's worth of bass, freshwater bass meat in the freezer Jordan did not like fish and he found uh, anything having to do with fishing sort of disgusting but when we run out of food during that week which we did and the food got real low I said well I'm going to start cooking up this fish I'm sorry you don't like it but that's what we got and uh, he said it was the best uh, some of the best meals he had ever had and it was really you know a wonderful thing that I had stored all that fish over the entire summer because during this emergency then we had plenty of food Um, but the way I cook fish you folks in the US go to your local grocery store 
and try to find a flower it's a seasoned flower called Kentucky kernel and kernel is spelled k-e-r-n-e-l for those of you watching this show on YouTube or on rumble I'll try to include a picture either here or here and uh, show you exactly what that Kentucky kernel looks like but that's the way I would make fish I would bread that up with Kentucky kernel flour and then I would fry that in a pan and my goodness it was just good eating here's some of the movies we rented I think we rented like 20 different movies but here when I was writing this outline I was trying to remember what some of those movies were and some of them just stand right out I remember them to this day The Wicker Man from 1973 The Fisher King from 1991 uh, one of the Hellraiser movies I don't remember which one if it was the first one or one of the sequels uh, Jacob's Ladder 1990 what a fantastic movie Miller's Crossing from 1990 what a wonderful movie Total Recall 1990 Dances with Wolves Air America Lionheart which was a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Nightbreed from 1990 I had totally forgotten we saw this movie but I was doing when I was doing the research I come across that movie and I remember yep that was on there a weird movie saw the grifters with John Cusack and Angelica Houston Hamlet 1990 with Mel Gibson and uh, those are just some of the movies that I remember I couldn't remember them all and you got to remember this was all on VHS these were not DVDs or anything like that so we had like 20 different VHS <clears throat> movie tapes that we had rented and in fact because of the snowstorm they didn't charge me for returning them late that was kind of cool at one point in the night this was right after I think we had just finished watching either Jacob's Ladder which is real spooky or one of the Hellraiser movies uh, Jordan spotted a bug on the wall in the living room where where the TV was and he says what is that we had just finished a really scary movie and so we were in between movies it was in the middle of the night he says what is that and we looked at this bug I'm not kidding you that bug was probably three inches big this bug I mean in length and it was stuck to the wall and it was freaky looking it looked like something out I mean it looked like something that come from hell <laughs> it was a freaky looking bug and as we're standing there looking at it it takes to flight and it starts flying around the living room and we're just standing there like what the heck I have never seen I had never seen a bug like that before then and remember I grew up in the woods so I saw a lot of bugs never seen anything this hideous before in my life and I've never seen anything this as hideous since. It was really spooky. Starts flying around the living room, and we're just staring there looking at it. It's flying slowly. And then all of a sudden, it speeds up, and it goes, zoop, and it flies under Jordan's chin. I'm not making this up. Grabs him by the chin and forces its way into his mouth. It was the weirdest, most disturbing thing ever. And he he's fighting to get it out. But that's what it did. It latched itself to his chin and then just forced its way in while he was trying to get it out. And he, and he takes it in his hand and the door was open at this time because the stove was going real hot. And he threw that outside the, the door. 
never saw it again couldn't we couldn't find it again never saw it again i never saw a bug like that again and i'm just telling you it, the, the the timing of that was unbelievable because like i said we just got done watching this really spooky movie and we're both kind of freaked out we're there in the middle of the woods all alone nobody else around in the middle of a snowstorm so we're cut off from everybody and this happened it was weird weird the way that thing <laughs> it, it was not as if it just inadvertently you know flew into his open mouth it, that's not what happened if it, it purposely landed on his chin and tried to force its way into his mouth really freaky last thing I'm going to tell you about this time we were snowed in was Jordan's nightmare within a nightmare he was sleeping in my bedroom I was sleeping on the floor I'd given him the bed and he woke me up white as a sheet and I said what's up with you he said you're never going to believe this dream I just had he said it was the freakiest dream I've ever had he said I was dreaming that we were here in the bedroom just like we are lights on and the lights were on I'm not sure why the lights were on but they were I think I think they were on because we weren't intending to go to sleep uh, when we get together we'd try to stay up for you know just until our bodies give out he says uh, we were in in your room just like this I was laying up here on the bed you were down on the floor you said, I'm going to get up, I'm going to go do something. And so you left. You know, you went out of the room. And he said, I was just sitting here, just kind of laying back, thinking. And uh, all of a sudden, these voices started coming out of your radio. Just gibberish come out of your radio. He said, it started off real low. And it got louder and louder. Until he said the volume of it was just really loud. And he said, uh, I jumped up and I unplugged the, the radio and it stopped. And he was like, man, that's strange. So he lays back down again. And all of a sudden it just starts up again through the radio that is now unplugged. This gibberish coming out of the radio. He says it freaked him out, and he took the radio. He says that he went out, and he threw, I think he threw it out the back door or something, and he was just terrified, and he, he's shaking, and he's like, where the heck is Brian? He says, and then all of a sudden I woke up, and I'm in your bedroom, and you're down on the floor, and I'm sitting right here on the bed. And I thought, man what a weird dream and he said I sat up and leaned back against the wall where I had a window my window is right there so I leaned up against that the wall with the you know the window here he says and these arms burst through the window and grabbed me and were trying to drag me outside the window and he said I woke up again is that crazy or what a dream a nightmare within a nightmare well I thought that was so cool that later I think I was trying to show off for a girl or something and I told that story but the way I told the story was that it was my dream that I was the one who had had this nightmare within a nightmare I never thought that would come back to bite me but 
Jordan happened to be with me and that girl one time. This was like a couple years later. And she says, oh, hey, Brian, do you remember when you told me about that dream you had? And she goes on to start telling that dream. And, man, I was caught red-handed. Jordan looked at me and he said, oh, you had that dream, did you? So uh, could never pull uh, anything past Jordan. He would find out sooner or later. So uh, I think I learned my lesson after that. And I stopped telling the dream as if it were my dream. That was Jordan's dream, trademark copyrighted. So that's the show for today, uh, this week, folks. Thanks for watching here on uh, YouTube or on uh, Rumble. Thanks for listening on whatever platform you choose to listen to the show. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I hope you all take care of yourselves, and especially those folks, those of you who are feeling down and gloomy, look up Ernest Shackleton and uh, encourage yourself with uh, the endurance, the endurance to endure the, the gloomy times that you're currently experiencing. I'll see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.